Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. Jeff, please take it away. Good afternoon. I am Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. Chase Byers in Fishers, Indiana. Good afternoon, Chase. Afternoon, Jeff. It's good to be on today. And we are missing Joe Works today, and we are getting some kind of programming instruction. What kind of programming instruction are we getting here? Uh, Jeff, your volume's a little low. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, let's see if I can fix it. No, no, that. it's not you, Jeff. I just fixed it. We're good. Okay. All right. Thank you, Drew. All right. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 21 today. We've made quite a bit of progress through the book of Acts. Yeah, I've actually really been enjoying this study. Um, I say that like I'm surprised, but I enjoy, I enjoy the book of Acts anytime we go through it. And I appreciate you guys uh, making sure to point out some things that I haven't thought of before. So it's been helpful. Uh, you know, where we are, um, Paul, has he's, he's wrapping up his third trip. Sometimes mm -hmm. I refer to this as the fundraising trip because uh, he, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians, he writes to the church at Corinth when he's in Ephesus. He writes to the church at Corinth and says on the first day of the week, they're to, to set aside money so that no collections have to be taken up when he gets there. And then he's going to take this money back to Jerusalem. In 2 Corinthians, he writes... When he gets to Macedonia, he writes to the Corinthians again, and he says, the Macedonians have been very generous. You follow up and, and do this. And then he gets to Corinth, and he writes a letter to the Romans, and he says, I want to see you guys, but first I have to take this these funds to the poor among the saints uh, that the people of Macedonia and Achaia have contributed. I've got to take it to Jerusalem. And then he's on his way. And, uh, and so here in Acts chapter 21, he is almost back to Jerusalem where we left off. And um, so let's pick it up. He's he's gotten to Caesarea, and uh, then we come to verse ten. And I guess Chase, let's start there in verse ten, and let's just go mm -hmm. down through. Um, let's go down through verse uh, fourteen. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came for down from Judea, and he came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, "This is what the Holy Spirit says." In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And when we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with them not to go to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem in the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. Okay. Uh, this Agabus has been mentioned before. He was mentioned back in chapter 11. Um, yep, that's right. Kind of interesting the way Luke introduces in both times a, a prophet named Agabus. Um, and um, Yeah. I, help, help me out with that. So I'm wanting to rack my brain. What other prophets are named by name on this side of the day of Pentecost? Um. Other than, you know, apostles were prophets, but you're saying somebody who is distinctly mentioned as a prophet. Well, okay. All right. I got, I got something. Acts 13. Okay, great. Uh, in Acts okay. 13, yeah. it says there were in the church that was, there, there were at Antioch in the church that was there. This is verse one, prophets and teachers. And then it names Barnabas and Simeon and who's called Niger oh, and Lucius of Cyrene and so on. Now, which ones of those were prophets and which ones of those were teachers? If you split those hairs, I'm not sure, but. You've got a group of them named anyway. That That's a good question. Um, yeah. Well, and of course, even in chapter 21, we left off in verse 8. 
it told us that Philip the Evangelist had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Their name isn't mentioned. No. But I, I like to point that out because I, I was having some Bible studies not too long ago with someone who was following the teachings of a guy named William Branham, who was claiming to be this prophet. And you see this in a lot of different religions, like uh, Christian uh, Christian religions, rather, or denominations, where they will have some guy that came on this side of the cross, on this yeah. side, side of Pentecost. Yeah who is making himself out to be not only a prophet, but like a new wave of Christianity. Yeah. You see the Mormons do it with Joseph Smith, and you see other denominations do it. But I made this point to my friend. I was like, Agabus, he's mentioned in chapter 11, and he's mentioned in chapter 1. He has no following. He is simply a messenger of the Lord. That's all he really is. And so I think it's helpful to just kind of slow down and think about that. That The prophets in the New Testament had a specific purpose. And they just delivered God's message. Well, you know, to that point, Paul himself, who's an apostle of Jesus Christ, emphasizes that he is just a minister, meaning a servant. We use the word minister today as if it's some highfalutin thing, but it, it's, it just means servant. And he is stressing right. that in as he writes to the Corinthians, who put a lot of stock in the wisdom of man and following this person or that person. You know, as you read the New Testament, it is clear that there were people who profoundly appreciated the Apostle Paul. You know, when, when he left uh, Ephesus back in, or when he left Miletus back in chapter 20, when he was meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus, it talked about how they, they fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing that he had said mm -hmm. he would see them no more. Um, and, and in these places where he stops and people plead with him not to go to Jerusalem because He's been told that bonds await him when he gets there. You see people dearly loved him and appreciated him. And, and yet, even Paul could say, I'm just a servant of, of Christ. Today, I think that it when, when people appreciate a godly man, a teacher of God's word, that's a good thing. But, but there is this dynamic, there is this phenomenon that occurs sometimes, even where we don't say, well, this is the prophet where people will latch on to one particular preacher, one particular teacher, and, and he is their standard. You know, whatever he says, well, back, you know, 20 years ago, brother so-and-so, you know, it, it always goes back to what brother so-and-so said. And uh, there's a fine line between truly appreciating somebody for their work in the gospel of Jesus Christ and feeling indebted to someone and regarding that person as, um kind of the word of god itself so yeah and like that's not what agabus wanted for himself and i also think when we think about prophesying jeff i don't think we think about it in the same way agabus was doing he kind of acted out what was going to happen to paul it's just such a very vivid yeah. way to describe what's going to happen to him but uh he's pretty clear too that these aren't his words but in verse 11, this is what the Holy Spirit says is going to happen. Uh, yeah. You're, you're going to be bound up and delivered over to the Gentiles. Yeah, you know, <laughs> acting things out. Uh, again, there's a fine line between um, being, be, being able to communicate a point visually and showmanship, I guess. And I'm not, I'm not at all suggesting Agabus cross that line. Um, but you know there, there is the there is such thing as showmanship i know years ago i was preaching in a meeting somewhere and i was trying to illustrate the point about we about modesty and dress even 
even how men dress, we should think about being clothed and we should think about not revealing too much. And um, so, uh, because the body is private, that's just a, a, a principle you see in scripture. Um, and so, so I had a pair of shorts and I pulled them on over my suit <laughs> in the pulpit and okay, now the shock in your eyes. Maybe it was showmanship. I was trying to make a point. And um, so, and it, well, okay, these shorts look fairly long. They look like they come down a long way. But then I sat down on the edge of the pulpit. Of course, you know what happens. The you know you sit down and the shorts come way up your thigh, and you're exposing a lot. And and uh, of course, I had my suit pants on under the shorts. So so Did it was. Did you walk up to the pulpit that way? No, I had them with me up there, so I just pulled them off. <laughs> oh, wow. That's actually really cool, Jeff. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, uh. I thought that it was a visual way to make a point. Mm -hmm. um, I think there were some folks who kind of felt like it was um, across the line in showmanship. <laughs> there is a line. No, we, it, need, we need to avoid doing things just to be showman, but at the same time, sometimes everybody I know says I'm a visual learner. So, yeah, well, at least it didn't backfire on you. I mean, it, I think that would really kind of illustrate the point well. And I, I think that's what we need to look for when we use illustrations or I don't even want to say props, but you know what I mean? And Agabus, he, he's really trying here to illustrate how bad it's going to be for Paul. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I think this would be a really vivid thing for the brethren to have seen. Um, yeah. Because they're not going to go through it. P Paul is going to be the one that goes through it. And just kind of see that acted out, I think, would kind of wake the brethren up to how hard it is. And, and maybe that's why they reacted the way they did, Jeff. Um, it says in verse 12, when we, so that's Luke included, when we heard this, we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. You know, right. we don't want this thing to happen to Paul. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one thing to say you're going to be arrested. It's another thing to actually bind him up. And they're going, oh, that's what's going to happen to him. Um, verse verse 15, after these days, we, Luke still, still speaking in the first person here, we took up our baggage and went up to Jerusalem, and there went with us also certain of the disciples from Caesarea, bringing with them one Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Any idea why Manasin is mentioned here? I mean, obviously, they're going to lodge with him, but... No, what stood out to me, I was just kind of skimming it before we got on. In verse 16 there, it says he is an early disciple. Does your translation say that? Mine says um, an early disciple, yes. Mm -hmm. I have overlooked that. I cannot, I don't think I've ever noticed that before. And uh, I just think that's an interesting detail that, that mm -hmm. would be given. So yeah. I don't really have any comments on that. I just never yeah. noticed that before. Yeah. When we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James. Now, this is not James the Apostle. James the Apostle was killed back in chapter 12. Uh, so who is this James? Well, I, I believe it's the James who writes the book of James and who is the brother of, of Jesus. And he's the yeah. James who spoke out in Acts chapter 15 regarding those who wanted to insist Gentiles had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And so we see this evidence. He's very prominent in the church in Jerusalem. So the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he rehearsed one by one the things which God had brought among the Gentiles through his ministry. 
And they, when they heard it, glorified God. And they said unto him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of them that have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Let's pause there. You know, early on, it was almost entirely Jews who were becoming Christians. And the number got up in Acts chapter 4, the number got up to 5,000, just counting the men. And so we have assumed, well, if you, if you include women, maybe there were 10,000 disciples at that point. And that would have been before Gentiles started being converted. And so there's still thousands here now mentioned, but it says they're zealous for the law. So they've become Christians. They are believers, but apparently they would still keep the Sabbath. Uh, and as we're going to see, they would still participate in some of the rituals associated with the temple. They're going to do that. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, verse 21, they've been informed concerning you, James talking to Paul, They've been informed concerning you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after their customs. Well, what Paul was doing was teaching Gentiles didn't have to keep the customs of Moses. They didn't have to circumcise the children. There's no indication anywhere that Paul was telling Jews, don't keep the customs of Moses, don't circumcise your children. And so you know how things get twisted. Apparently, yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can kind of understand why. I mean, the Jews have been following this for centuries. And so I'd imagine rumors like this could have got spread real easily. And this would have been like a hot piece of gossip. You know, oh, did you know one of the apostles is telling the Jews that they don't have to live like Jews anymore? And that they, not only that, but they shouldn't be living like Jews anymore. And it just getting twisted and turned all around. And you know what? If I were Paul here, uh, I think if he didn't have the right spirit about him, things could have went really poorly here. Yep, yep, yep. Just think about the work Paul was doing. Paul, and he kind of makes this point in Galatians, he didn't really ever seek the approval of those in Jerusalem. He he wanted the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. That, that's right. who approved and, and, and put him on his apostleship. And so when these elders pull him aside and they kind of, I don't think they rebuke him, but they inform him of this. I think it would be easy for Paul to say, well, well, it's not true. So I don't really care what they think. Uh, this is ridiculous. And just kind of go on about his ministry like he's been doing. But that's not what we see him do. Um, in verse 22, I'll keep reading. That's cool with you, Jeff. It says, so what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that uh, what they are were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. And with regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. And the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, entered the temple announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. So Paul yields to what these men suggest that he should do to show that he still, maybe a, a, this isn't the best way to put it, but that's how I'm going to say it. He still has his Jewish card, right? Yeah. He, he's still <laughs> he, he's still a, a practicing Jew, and he still believes in the law of Moses. Yeah. Um, you know, you're and, talking uh, about kind of being all things to all men. Yeah, you were talking about when, you know, how he could have reacted when he finds out people are saying he's teaching things that he's not. And one way he's, he could have reacted is to be indignant. 
And, and you know, a number of times through the years, I've had somebody really, in some cases, they just misunderstood. And they said, well, Jeff says such and such, which I didn't. In other cases, they were really making an accusation. Um, and it is easy to, to get you back up and just say, to get frustrated, you know. But Paul here, did you, I think you mentioned all things to all men, 1 Corinthians 9. 1 mm -hmm. Corinthians yeah. 9. Yeah, and that's that's what he's interested in in trying to do is to cause no hindrance to the gospel, um, to do whatever he needs to do so that he's not in the way of of the gospel getting through, and so he's going to be willing to go along with this request of James to be at charges for these fellows. What are these fellows doing? They, it says, as you read it, they're going to purify themselves, and and James wants Paul. They've taken a vow. And Paul wants, uh, or James wants Paul to be at charges for them. What's this all about? Uh, you know, we don't know 100% what it is. Some have suggest suggested that it's the Nazarite vow, as you read in, um, it's in Numbers. I thought I have it in my other Bible. Numbers, Numbers six. Uh, six, thank mm -hmm. you. Uh, there are some tenets of it that are like the Nazarite vow, but there are other parts of it that don't really line up with it. So I don't know what your thoughts on that are. But it's some kind of vow um, yeah. that included needing to have their heads shaven and some kind of dedication to, to the Lord in some way. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it is the Nazarite vow. The, as you go through number six, um, what it involved was basically the idea is you're going to you're going to offer some hair, some of your hair in fire to God. But you're going to do it after you've grown the hair out in such fashion that it's undefiled. So you would shave your head at the beginning. And then you would avoid coming into contact with anything that would be defiling um, for the period of the vow. And apparently the person making the vow could define the time period. It might be a week. It might be two weeks. It might be three weeks, might be four weeks, whatever. And at the end of that time, whatever hair you had grown out, then you would shave it off and there would be other offerings, but this hair would be offered that had grown undefiled. And it's kind of interesting if during the time that you're growing the hair, you accidentally become defiled, like you're walking along and your buddy's beside you and he had a heart attack and falls over dead on you. Now you've touched a corpse, you're undefiled. You've got to start over, shave your head again and uh, start growing it out and, and so on. But there are some offerings that are to be made at the conclusion of of this and let me let me just read a little bit here number six and make sure i'm getting it right uh let's see i'm going to go to number six and uh verse 13. now this is the law of the nazarite when the days of his separation are fulfilled he shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting and he shall present his offering to the lord one lamb one male lamb a year old without defect for a burnt offering and one ewe lamb a year old without defect for a sin offering and one ram without defect for a peace offering and a basket of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil along with their grain offering and their libations. There's some expense there when you start talking about um, this male lamb and the ewe lamb and the ram and not to mention then the grain offering and all. There's some expense. And so James is asking Paul, you be it you you pay for these things so that everybody can see. Mm -hmm. And, and, and notice, you have to go down to, they're going to have to go down to the temple to, to do all this, to make these offerings. And so 
it's going to involve them in the temple service. And, and that's something I think a lot of people miss. Jewish believers mm-hmm. up until the destruction of the temple still participated in the rites of uh, the, the services at the temple, which then helps us understand the book of Hebrews, why it's so important that in that as you get close to the destruction of Jerusalem, the uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, that there be this letter letting these Jewish believers know you don't, you don't okay. need to rely on the Levitical priesthood. You've got yeah. the priesthood you need in Christ. Fix your uh, fix your eyes on Jesus. Uh, yeah. That's right. And he, the, the according to the order of Melchizedek, forever. Um, yeah. I guess I do have one question. It's the one that normally gets raised when people suggest that this is the Nazarite yeah. vow. Mm-hmm. Is about the the grape juice um, in number six, verse three. Yeah. You must not drink any grape juice or any fresh grapes. People will normally raise. Well, then how could Paul partake of the Lord's Supper then? on the first day of the week if he had taken this vow that said he couldn't drink grape juice. And that's the one suggestion I've heard to maybe suggest he didn't follow through with that part of the vow or something. But I didn't know if you ever had any of that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know if he if he felt like under these circumstances he wouldn't partake of the Lord's Supper. I don't know if this in in this case it was less than a week long vow. I mean, your hair doesn't grow a whole lot in a week, but you grow enough to shave it off, I guess. Um, I don't know. I don't know about that. Uh, because, or could it be that he used it? He used a different kind of fruit of the vine rather than grapes. You know, the expression is fruit of the vine, but it is routinely grapes um, in the New Testament and in in the Bible. I don't I don't know, Chase. I don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah. You know, there, there's also the thought you could say, well, Paul was just paying for their sacrifices, but it looks like he went beyond what James asked um, because it says in verse 26, Paul took them in, and the next day purifying himself with them went into the temple declaring the fulfillment of the days of purification now what does that mean that may mean that he didn't participate in the whole vow and shaving the head and all although we saw him shave his head when he'd taken a vow back earlier in acts chapter 18 um but it may mean he just purified himself so he could go into the temple and and take care of the sacrifices that they have to make at the conclusion of the period um but there's there's some difficulty in the text here um so anyway because in verse 24 it says take these take and purify yourself with them and be at charges for them that they may shave their heads as if it's the beginning of of the period when you shave your head at the beginning Although it could be when they shave their heads at the end and and they're shaving their head to offer their hair up. So it's it's a little confusing. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the point is, Paul makes it clear, I'm not against Jews keeping these customs. God would bring that to an end as a fact once the temple is destroyed. Uh, But that mm -hmm. hasn't happened yet. Right, exactly. Well, what happens next, I think it's important before we read it, just to note, What's about to happen is going to be uh, what takes what takes the the center of the story of the book of Acts for the rest of the book. Um, there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and what we're about to read is kind of what takes the storyline where it goes after this. So it's kind of a, an important hinge in the book. Just get verse, just verse 27, first of all. 
When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and seized him. So it says the seven days. Um, mm -hmm. So is that the seven days of the vow? Was it? Maybe it was just a seven-day vow. Yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, that's and, great. Um, and if that is the case, then then uh, he participated from the beginning, and he may have actually, you know, shaved his head too. But in any event, um, uh, seven days are completed, and so they're going to go into the temple. And uh, it's interesting; it's not local Jews; it's Jews from Asia. Yeah, how far away is that? Hundreds and hundreds of miles. Um, and it, 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 go ahead, read the next two verses. Yeah, uh, verse 28, this is after they seized him. It says, shouting, fellow Israelites, help. This is the man who teaches everyone, uh, everyone elsewhere against uh, man excuse me this is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people our law in this place what's more he also brought greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place for they had previously seen trophimus the ephesian in the city with him and they supposed that paul had brought him into the temple yeah so it, it's all about trophimus and ephesian from ephesus and and ephesus is in asia and and these Jews from Asia have a, have seen Paul with Trophimus, who's a Gentile, and they've assumed he took him into the temple. So we've got a question. Um, the question is, is there a prescribed time of year for these sacrifices? I presume the question, questioner has in mind the sacrifices we were talking about associated with the Nazarite vow. Or can it be vowed any day of the year? And Chase, as far as I understand it, these were voluntary vows that they could make any time of the year. There were certain sacrifices that were prescribed at certain times, but this is just a, a, a vow you can make at any time. Yeah, and I mean, the Pentateuch is pretty quick to tell us whenever there's a specific day and time and month, you know, for each of these feasts or these sacrifices. And so I think it would have been pretty quick to tell us that, but as far as the Nazarite vow goes, there's no day or time or year um, mm -hmm. or month associated with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So they, they accused him of taking Trophimus into the temple. Um, yeah. So so we, we're familiar with the temple and the fact that in the first century, there were courts around the temple. Inner courts, Jews could go all the way into the inner courts. But Gentiles were restricted from going into the inner courts. There were there was actually a, a balustrade surrounding the inner courts and signs, engraved stone signs saying any Gentile who goes beyond this point is responsible for his own death. And so uh, it was it was a big deal. Gentiles can't cross that. And apparently that's what they're accusing Paul of having done, taking a Gentile past that point. By the way, if you have a question you'd like for us to address as we go through this, please feel free to send that to us. We'll see if we can work it in. All right, Chase, you got anything right there? Well, I mean, it's just a long way to go to throw something at the wall that's a really weak argument. But uh, <laughs> it, it works. I mean, it ended up working out for him. In verse 30, it says that the whole city was stirred up and the people rushed together and they seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And so people were all upset about it. They were ready to kill Paul over this. And that, that's what verse 31 says. As they were trying to kill him, 
word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos. You mind explaining that a little bit there, Jeff? Yeah, Antonia was the Roman barracks, which most believe was on the northwest corner of the temple complex, just outside the temple wall. And they kept an eye on everything that went went on right. in, in the temple on the temple mount. And so these soldiers are aware there's a commotion. So they come to check on it. And of course, the crowd now, they have to quit beating Paul because here come the Roman soldiers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so in verse 32, taking along soldiers and centurions, he immediately ran down to them and seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the commander approached, took him into custody, ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he, he, uh, and he asked who he was and what he had done. Mm -hmm. And so... I mean, imagine being Paul at this point, like, oh, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I mean, they just kind of swore me and swamped me. But this is kind of like the, the dad when he hears two kids fighting. He just comes in and just starts separating people and, you know, just starts yanking people. Yeah, and It's kind of what these Roman soldiers did. They just came in and took control of the situation. And just to add to the chaos in verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting, shouting one thing and some another. Since he was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered them to be taken into the barracks. And so the guy's like, I can't figure out what's going on. So we're just going to separate the parties, throw Paul over here so that we can sort everything out. And that, that, expression, yeah, that expression, some shouted one thing and some another. We saw Luke use a similar expression in Ephesus back in Acts 19. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, uh, for the assembly was in confusion. And so both cases, you have this picture Luke just paints of, of a mob scene, basically. So, all right, you were going to go on and talk about what happens with uh, with Paul. Well, it's it's just at every turn, Paul does the one thing that we don't think or that we would not do uh, in these situations. And so verse 35 says, when Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mass of the people were yelling, get rid of him. And as he was about to go into the barracks, Paul said to the commander, am I allowed to say something to you? And he replied, well, you know how to speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? And Paul said, I'm a Jewish man from, the Tars from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important uh, city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. Yeah. Yeah. I think most people... They would be fine to be separated. Like, okay, all right, fine. You got me out of this. We'll sort all this out. I'll prove my innocence. But Paul actually wants to address the crowd. Uh, but in the in-between part there, uh, Jeff, what do you think about this whole dialogue between Paul and the commander? It's interesting. The commander obviously has has jumped to a conclusion. He, Whether he thinks he knows for certain or not, he suspects that Paul is this, is this uh, Egyptian assassin. And... Uh, and so then when Paul speaks Greek, apparently this captain had reason to think that the Egyptian assassin wouldn't be speaking Greek. And Paul can't. So he's a little perplexed. So then Paul explains who he is. And um, what's interesting to me is if if I get arrested, I, if you ever gotten pulled over by a police officer, I don't know. Do you, do you say, uh, excuse me, officer, may I address the crowd for a moment? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> But Paul does, and and, right. and he is given that permission. 
And so, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> by the way, yeah, verse so forty. Place yeah, now, not in the temple, but this takes place on the steps of those Roman barracks. And so that's where he is at this point. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to read verse forty, and I'm just going to read into chapter twenty-two here. Right. So after he had given him permission, Paul stood up on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Aramaic. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Aramaic, they became even quieter. And he continued, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strictness of our ancestral law. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. And I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. And after I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who were there and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. So we can stop there for now. Um, so Paul, he's trilingual, isn't he, Jeff? Yeah. Uh, so... He, your Bible says Aramaic. Of course, he's already spoken Greek, and that got the Roman captain's attention. Now, when he speaks mm -hmm. to the people, to the Jewish people, they typically spoke Aramaic, which is kind of a cousin language to Hebrew. Looks like mm -hmm. Hebrew. Um, and that gets their attention. My Bible actually says he spoke to them in Hebrew. But your, yeah, translation, your translation, probably the translators are assuming that the word Hebrew here is being used for the language that the Jews typically spoke at this time in Judea, which would have been Aramaic. And so right. either way, the point is he was speaking to them, not in Latin, not in Greek, but he was speaking to them in the language that they routinely spoke in and that they knew. And it was the language the Jews would have used. And so, oh, okay. Okay. Well, we'll listen to this guy. And he, he starts off kind of appropriately. He introduces who he is. But he also kind of talks about his Jewish background, and he had the most desirable Jewish background that one could probably have. Yeah, uh, not, you know, not he was only born, of course, in Tarsus. Yeah, go ahead. But not only was he trained up uh, as a student of Gamaliel, um, but he actually is talking about how zealous he was for the things of the Jews, so much so that he persecuted this way. Luke has used the term "way" several times. The Paul, Saul persecuted the way back early on in the chapters, in the chapters of Acts. And he's going to talk about the way later on in, in the book of Acts. And I think we've talked about before. It seems to me this likely goes back to Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth and the mm -hmm. life. No one comes to the father, but by me. And so, um, so Paul says, uh, I persecuted this way unto death. And he is just saying, look, I get it. I'm, I've always been zealous for the law. And I was so much that I used to persecute this way, but something happened to give me a new perspective. Yeah. So of course, in verse, uh, verse six, how far do you want me to go, Jeff? Uh, I don't know. Go down to verse, uh, go down through verse 10. As I was traveling and approaching Damascus about noon at an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I said, what should I do, Lord? 
The Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told everything that you have been assigned to do. So for, of course, we've been going through the book of Acts for several months now, and we remember this story back from chapter 9. Paul recounts it here in chapter 22, and he's going to recount it again uh, here in just a little bit as well. And it really is a cool story, isn't it, Jeff? I mean, yeah, it is. it's got every, everything you want in a story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, this is the second time we're going to hear this story. It's interesting. There is this little thing that some have made out to be a contradiction when it says in verse 9, they did not hear the voice. And back in the original account in Acts 9, it says they heard the voice. Um, and, and what it is here, and some translations will actually, instead of saying hear the voice and not hear the voice, they'll translate they did not understand the voice. The language is the same in both passages in so far as the vocabulary. In both cases, it uses the word for voice, and in both cases, it uses the word for hear, akuo for hear, and, and phone for voice. But it uses a different construction. It uses it in the genitive case in Acts 9, and it uses the accusative case here. The distinction in classical Greek was that when you use the accusative case with the verb for hear, you meant understand or even give heed to, uh, give attention to. Whereas if you use the genitive case with the verb for here, you, you might just be saying you're aware of. And so Luke, who is a very educated man, he's a physician, he seems to honor this distinction that had been true in classical Greek. Luke's Greek is a little better than, say, Mark's Greek, for example, or John's Greek. And so what he's acknowledging in Acts 9 is they were aware of the voice. But in Acts 22, as Paul tells the story, saying they didn't actually understand the voice. They didn't understand what was being said. And there have been times when I've heard somebody yelling, but I couldn't tell what they were saying. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I also think it's important to note, I think we noticed, noticed this back in chapter 9, I mean, Paul's pretty clear in his understanding, or I guess Saul, when this is actually happening. In verse 10, I said, what should I do, Lord? I mean, Paul re- realizes that any salvation or anything that he can do here is something that he should be doing. Um, and so the Lord tells him, you know, go to Damascus, and there you're going to find out what you should do. Right. And right. Saul obeys. So I appreciated someone pointing that out to me, is that, I mean, Paul had things to do here um, if he wanted to get to this salvation. That's right. Uh, And and since you bring up that point, I'm going to jump ahead. So he does go to Damascus and he meets this Ananias. And we can read these intervening verses, but I'm going to jump right down to verse 16, where Ananias says, And now why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The point I would make is Paul did have things to do and his sins were not washed away until he does them. Um, You know, he had believed to the point that even though he struck blind, he is going to obey the Lord and he is going to allow himself to be led by the men that were with him into Damascus. And he's going to wait until he finds out what he's supposed to do. Um, And then Ananias comes to him sent by the Lord. And even though he believed and even though he had started acting in accordance with his belief in Acts nine, it says he was, fasting and and he was praying and so for three days here's this man who's been persecuting the followers of the way persecuting the followers of christ and now he realizes christ has been raised from the dead and he is praying what would he desperately be praying lord forgive me i didn't know i was wrong i'm sorry 
and he believes, and yet his sins were not washed away until we get to verse 16. And Ananias says, and rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Paul himself will later talk about being baptized into Christ in Romans 6 and Galatians 3. Baptism is not some magic thing. It's not works whereby you earn your salvation, but it is the point, according to Paul's teaching, Paul himself, at which we come into contact with the death of Jesus Christ. We become a part of the death of Jesus Christ. We become a, come into contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what saves us. But if you want to ask when the, the sins are washed away, it's at the point of baptism. We're justified by faith. But if you want to know at what point in your faith, uh, it's at the point of baptism. Mm-hmm. Yep. Amen. Well put. And I'm thankful for these pretty consistent thoughts on that throughout the book of Acts. I mean, mm-hmm. it comes up over and over again. It never hides it. Mm-hmm. Let's go back and get verse 14 um, and 15, unless you want to go back even further than that. Nope, that sounds good. Go ahead. So Ananias says to him when he comes to him and before he tells him to rise and be baptized, he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one. I think we've noted before, there's several indications that Paul saw Jesus. Uh, We saw back in Acts chapter one, one of the requirements of an apostle was to be a witness of the resurrection. And Paul is chosen Mm -hmm. to be an apostle belatedly, and yet he did see the risen Lord. And Mm -hmm. here's another one of these statements, uh, to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you shall be a witness for him unto all men of what you have seen and heard. Yep. Yeah, and of course, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 1, he'll say, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Exactly. Exactly. Good. Yep. All right. Let's get 17 through 21. After I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him telling me, Hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they know that in the synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The audience has listened attentively all up through all of this story, even when he talked about Jesus appearing to him. And even when he talked about um, Jesus, who was crucified, being alive, all of that, they've listened to resurrection. But but when he says something about going to the Gentiles, that's when they lose it. Uh, It says in verse 22, they gave him audience unto this word. And they lifted up their voice and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. They listened to him until he started talking about, and now I'm going to go tell this good news to the Gentiles. And you get a little bit of the sense of the of the jealousy of the Jews. This is our thing. Gentiles can't get in on this. Gentiles are awful people. We're not going to let them have any of this. Yeah. Oh, and of course, it makes sense what he's trying to do. He is trying to show why he is hanging out with Gentiles in the first place. He's trying to make a case for why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. And it's not that he brought Trophimus into the temple. No. He didn't do that. That was a false accusation. But I think he is rightfully so starting by saying, well, look at this sequence of events that has made it clear from God that I need to be spending time with the Gentiles. And if you all are willing to look at these facts, 
you will also see what I see and that God has opened the door to the Gentiles. But of course, he doesn't get that far. They were waiting for him to get to Gentiles and that just set him off. They didn't hear out the rest of what he had to say there. Yep. And then verse 23 is they cried out and threw off their garments and cast dust into the air. <laughs> sounds like it sounds crazy. The chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle bidding that he should be examined by scourging that he might know for what cause they so shouted against him. So we're going to examine you, meaning we're going to try to beat the truth out of you. And so they're going to scourge him and figure out, okay, what is, what is the deal here? Why do they hate you so much? And when they tied him up with the thongs, Paul said to the centurion that stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard it, he went to the chief captain and told him saying, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman. And the chief captain came and said, "I'm tell me, are you a Roman?" And he answered, "Yes." So Roman citizens had special had rights. They could not just be beaten without having been convicted of some kind of crime. And uh, so they they would gladly beat somebody who wasn't a Roman, beat the truth out of him. But they would not do that to a Roman citizen. The interesting thing is, and it, it was a long time before I got this. Paul had said back in verse thirty nine. I am a citizen, but there he had not said, I'm a Roman citizen. He said, I'm a citizen of no mean city. There were different citizenships. And Paul had a citizenship as a resident of Tarsus, but he also had Roman citizenship. And he hadn't let that cat out of the bag until just now in Acts chapter 22. And when they're about to beat him, he says this, then the guy who's about to beat him goes to the chief captain and says, wait a minute, this guy's a, a Roman. And so, then you have this conversation in verse 28, and you want to get 28 and 29, and then we're going to be out of time. The commander replied, I bought this citizenship for a large amount of money. Paul said, I was born a, a citizen. And those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the commander, too, was alarmed when he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and he had him, had him bound. Yeah. So we'll have to pick it up there next time. Um, but uh, anyway, enjoyed going through this with the chase. And to the rest of you, enjoyed uh, the question that we got during the webcast today. And, and we look forward to being with you again next week. Oh, that was.